Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The belief that inequality is rising in the rich world is being used to justify radical political programs. It's touted as a cause of everything from tribalism to low voter turnout. But how large is the gap between the haves and the have-nots? Is it really growing? And how much does it matter? You're listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy. This week we're asking, what's wrong with inequality? My guest is The Economist, Thomas Piketty. His 2014 doorstop book, Capital in the 21st Century, was a global hit, selling more than two and a half million copies. Its controversial conclusions, built on tracts of data, go back to the Industrial Revolution to provide a sweeping view of how wealth concentrates. The book was credited as providing the stats behind the slogans of Occupy Wall Street. led The Economist to dub Mr. Piketty a modern Marx. Well, in his new book, Capital and Ideology, Piketty offers a historical sweep and prescriptions for a more equitable future. But the Piketty philosophy has also attracted plenty of criticism. Might his recommendations, including heavy wealth taxes, do more harm than good? With me is Thomas Piketty and our own economics editor, Henry Kerr. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. So first, Thomas, before we talk about your work, the comparison where we've called you the modern Marx, what do you make of it? Well, you know, I, I, I write 150 years after Marx and I, I, of course, the kind of book I write is very, very different from the kind of book he wrote because, you know, I have so much more uh, historical data. Well, first, I have 150 years of historical evidence, which he didn't know. You know, I try to build on the lessons from the 20th century, from the failure of communism in the 20th century, from the successes of social democracy up to a certain point. You know, that's what I'm trying to build upon, which, by definition, uh, Karl Marx could not do. So in that sense, uh, yes, the comparison is, uh, you know, has a limited uh, significance. But your first book had the same name as, as Marx's uh, great work, Capital. Your new book uh, moves on more to a theory of history. So even if you're not a pure Marxist, you do see things to emulate in his work. One of the big differences is that, you know, not only and I have 150 years of evidence that he didn't have, but also my general view of history, as I put it in my new book, Capital and Ideology, is that I believe not so much in the class struggle, but rather in the struggle of ideology, or to put it in a more constructive manner, the search and the quest for justice. You know, I think that the idea that class position in itself 
is enough to give you a theory of how to organize society, uh, the theory of the perfect property regime, the, the fair tax system, the ideal education regime, the system of frontier, is, is an illusion. You know, I think we need to take ideology seriously. Otherwise, you know, this Marxist belief that, you know, you just need to put down the existing system and, and you know, then after the, the revolution, things will be great. You know, of course, after the 20th century, uh, you cannot subscribe to that kind of view. And so this is why, you know, I want to take seriously the question of how you organize property relation. You know, it's, it's good to say that you're going to change the property system, but it's even better to say how you want to change it. In that sense, my general approach is, I don't think it's a Marxist approach. Henry, do you think this idea of a sort of theory of history is, in essence, Marxist? Well, what's interesting from reading the book is I'd say that you frequently raise the idea that history can sort of go off in any direction depending on the political actors of the time. So I suppose what I'd ask is what determines whether or not society progresses or regresses as it moves from one, what you would term sort of regime to another? Well, in the long run, I think that there is definitely some progress. You know, I think there's been some positive learning about justice over time. I think, you know, today's societies, uh, in particular in Europe, Europe, you know, are more equal, uh, more productive uh, than they have ever been. And overall, you know, there's a very optimistic message that I'm trying to send in this book is that the reduction of inequality over the course of the 20th century has been a huge uh, success. You know, it, it led to more mobility, to more economic prosperity, to more individual uh, emancipation through uh, education and public educational investment, you know, unfortunately has been stagnating in recent decades. And I think that's one of the for growth slowdown and for rising inequality. But, you know, we can we can pursue and, and in, in, in the right direction. And in, in the long run, there's a process of learning about justice. You know, societies learn from their mistake, their past experience. The only caveat and limitation to that is that sometimes you also have historical amnesia. You know, we forget about some of the more distant experiences. We don't always look at the experience of others as much as we should. You know, we, sometimes we don't like to compare, you know, in Europe, we, we don't look at uh, what happens in India, in the U.S. In the U.S., they tend to look at nothing apart from the U.S. And that's where, you know, uh, the social sciences and I think this kind of book uh, can be useful by sort of forcing to make this, take this comparative approach and historical approach and to help the social learning process to work better. In moving from writing your last book, Capital, to this one, Capital and Ideology, do you find your positions evolving? Have your views changed? Do you disagree with anything you wrote last time around? Well, there, there were many limitations in capital in the 21st century, which some of them, I, I was already aware of them, but some of them, I, I have come to perceive them more clearly over time. So in particular, the capital in the 21st century was too much uh, centered on uh, the experience of Western countries. So it was, you know, a lot about Western Europe, North America, and not too much about the rest of the world. And I have tried in this new book to give a, a much more uh, prominence to case of India, uh, Brazil, uh, South Africa, uh, China. And that's partly thanks to the success of the previous book, I was able in some cases to access data and to force uh, with the 
help of journalists and media like you. So thanks a lot. Uh, put pressure on government to open their data sources. Now we still have too little information. You know, I think there's too little transparency, in particular on wealth ownership in this world. But we we have you know I have been we've been able with a large number of colleagues and with uh, our uh, you know network of the world inequality database to extend the geographical scope. So that's wh one direction in which. You know, this book, I think, is more interesting than the previous one. Very nice that you, you think your present book is more interesting than the previous one. Um, <laughs> I wondered, Henry, I'm sure you have a follow-up question for Thomas. What do you make of the thesis of capital and ideology? Give us your nutshell on it. Ultimately, the book ends with a call for socialism and what I think would be perceived as fairly radical policies, you know, 90% wealth tax on the richest billionaires, which is well above even the sort of wealth tax proposals that have come out in the US presidential campaign. I was going to ask, these sorts of ideas are a response to what you see as a crisis of inequality. Your last book was widely praised for the historical data it brought together, but the ideas of inequality inexorably rising were more controversial. Do you still believe, for instance, in the R-verse is G theory that inequality has to go on rising and unless we intervene with the sort of proposals that you call for more forcefully, I'd say, in this current book, things are going to get sort of inevitably worse. Well, you know, if we look at our, uh, for instance, uh, rankings of billionaire wealth published by your colleagues uh, at Forbes magazine or by the Financial Times, you know, how the, the top billionaire wealth has, uh, has evolved uh, since the 2008 crisis, you can see that they have done very well and that, the, you know, the general rise of billionaire wealth uh, in, in the world, you know, has been, uh, has proceeded at a pace that is much faster than the growth of world GDP. And if you have a different ranking of billionaire to propose at The Economist, you know, I, I think you should really publish it. That would be very interesting. But the situation where people have to use magazine rankings to study wealth is not a good situation. And, you know, we're trying our best to get more fiscal data on wealth. And I think we live in a world where partly to protect the kind of wealth inequality we have, we don't have enough transparency about wealth registration. And I think governments, you know, have had a discussion at the OECD to have more automatic transmission of bank information about wealth portfolio. But this information, you know, at this stage, it's not clear that it's really being used by tax administration, or at least we don't... We yeah, don't but, see, but, but you do, but, but Thomas, you do draw conclusions. I mean, we can't just simply go round and round saying there isn't enough data, there probably isn't. But you write that every society has a regime of inequality. What does that mean? Well, first, some societies have a regime of equality. So what, all I, what I'm saying is that every society, you know, whether uh, Soviet Union or uh, British colonial empire, you know, have to come with a theory of why the particular level of inequality or equality that you have is, is in the general interest, is good. And say, so this book is a, is a book about this different justification of different levels of inequality or equality. And my general take is that we want to take seriously this system of justification because they always have some ingredients of plausibility. So you never have, you have no society in the world where you will just say, you know, okay, the rich are rich, the poor are poor, and it's like that. It's always much more sophisticated. You always try to present a particular level of inequality or equality as being in the general interest. And sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not true. And I'm trying to subject this discourse to historical analysis of criticism, you know, bringing a, a lot of data, a lot of evidence to, to try to, to, you know, to draw lessons for, for the future. One thing you don't get reading your book, I think, is a sense that any particular inequality regime is better than what comes before. It can seem as if we're sort of careering from one 
unjust system to another. And yet there's been tremendous human progress in the second half of the 20th century. So how do you come to a judgment on how to sort of protect the mechanisms that have created that progress, the spread of free markets, for instance, and how do you weigh that up against what you see as the imperative to correct injustice? The, the, the spread of free markets, you already had this in the 19th century. So, you know, the, what the real progress of the 20th century has been the expansion of public education, the reduction of inequality that came with it, and this reduction of inequality in the, you know, in the past century has been a tremendous success. So since the 1980s, 90s, you have a rise of inequality. But let me make clear that even today, we live in much uh, more equal societies than a century ago. And this is good. You know, this has been a huge success. And what I'm trying in this book to do is to, to draw the lessons from this positive evolution. So you mentioned earlier progressive taxation. You know, you've had experiences with uh, 80% uh, top tax rate in the US from 1930 to 1980. And I try to bring a lot of historical evidence in the book showing that this was largely a success. This contributed to the reduction of inequality. This also contributed to financing investment in public infrastructure, public education, and to bring a sense of you know, fiscal justice and therefore fiscal consent by the middle class and the lower middle class. And this is what's missing today, is that, you know, many people in the middle class, lower class, you know, feel that the rich are escaping taxation and therefore they don't want to pay anymore. And that's a serious danger for our basic social contract. You can often get a sense that there's two camps when it comes to worrying about inequality. Some people are very focused on the fortunes of billionaires and think that the imperative is to stop their runaway wealth. Other people say, well, what's really matters in the economy is that opportunity has gone away because housing markets are failing, because education, perhaps the investment has not been enough. There are geographical inequalities. That's been a big subject of politics in recent years. Do you think there's a sense in which one of those is more important than the other? Because it can often seem as if certainly in the American presidential election, the candidates are much more focused on very, very rich people who perhaps you know, aren't very visible to the public at large compared to these constraints on their opportunity. This is a strong uh, ideological statement, you know, to focus only on the, you know, the tax financing part on the billionaire and to forget the program on public universities, public health systems. So, you know, the key question is what do you do about access to education, access to health, access to property? For, you know, the bottom 50% in society today does not inherit from anything. You know, you have the average inheritance received by the bottom 50% uh, in, in Britain or in the US is, you know, 10,000 to 15,000 dollars, uh, whereas you have people who inherit from millions, dozens of millions. To me, that's the central concern is how do you increase really the opportunities of the bottom 50 and 60%. And this is the central uh, issue uh, for me. And that's prior to, to taxing the rich, because quite often if you look at the polls in America, they will say that, you know, opportunities gone away, but they won't say they want more redistribution or they won't necessarily say that they think billionaires are a big problem. And it seems to me that you could do the things you call for in education without a very high wealth tax, for example. Well, you know, I'm not sure about that. You know, if you ask people in America about the billionaire tax, you know, they are largely uh, in, in favor of it. And, you know, I think when you have uh, Warren Buffett uh, who shows his uh, income tax declaration and who says, well, look, you know, I pay the lower rate of tax on my income than my secretary. I think, you know, most people, maybe not you, but I think most people will say this is a problem because... What, you thought that Henry Kerr didn't 
well, feel like paying the secretary. That seems a bit of an well, unfair. Well, but. because well because he just said that this maybe this was not the key problem. And and I, I I'm saying you know if you want to build a fiscal legitimacy and fiscal consent, it's important that you know the, the middle class and the lower middle class know that you know people at the top pay a rate of tax on their real income, not their fiscal income, which for very high wealth individual is only a very very small fraction of their real economic income. And this is why you know wealth tax can be can be useful, which, by the way, you know, sorry for being so unfair, I noticed that The Economist is now supporting the idea of a progressive wealth tax, or at least I've seen that in some editorial. I don't know if it represents the majority opinion or a minority opinion in, in your journal. We well, you might like to clear that up briefly, and then I'm going to move on. Henry, fight your corner. We've had a column to that effect, but I do think it's remarkable the extent to which, partly because of, of your work and work of other inequality scholars, the belief that inequality is always rising everywhere across the West is sort of a, a premise of political discussion. And I think it doesn't always stand up to interrogation as strongly as you you might think because of that, even if certain trends such as increasing wealth inequality in the US are pretty much indisputable. I think the interesting sort of tension here is behind the idea that we don't, to a certain extent, that we don't know what's going on. But then there's a lot of at the same time, political effort to base quite dramatic policy change on the basis of something about which it's still a bit murky. Well, this is a very good example. And actually, I wanted to put it uh, back to you anyway, Thomas. And that's the the growth of so-called millennial socialism. So in your book, you're ultimately arguing for a transition to a form of socialism, a new form of socialism. What defines it, if you could put it in short form? The form of participatory socialism that I describe on my book rests on two main pillars. You know, one is educational justice. And, you know, today we have a lot of hypocrisy about equal uh, opportunity, equal access to education. And, and uh, you know, we need quantifiable objective about investment in education received by the, by the bottom groups in societies. And that's Pillar number one. Pillar number two is how do you uh, reduce, you know, the, the enormous uh, inequality in access to property and, and participation in the economy. And I think we need a more, you know, broader participation in the economy. So we mentioned the issue of progressive taxation, inheritance for all. So, you know, I, to me, this is really central. This is, these are proposals that were made first by, you know, Thomas Paine in the 18th century of using the progressive inheritance tax to finance a capital endowment for all. Tony Atkinson recently has written of that. And I'm just pursuing this tradition, but pushing it further by using uh, annual wealth tax and not only the proceeds of inheritance tax in order to have a higher capital endowment at 25. And last point, I take the experience in Sweden, Germany, a number of Nordic countries about co-management, you know, the fact that workers' uh, rights have become more important over the course of the 20th century. Uh, since the 1950s, in large German corporations, you have half of the seats in the board of corporations that go to worker representative and the other half for shareholders, which means that if workers, in addition to this half of the seat as workers, have in addition 10 or 20 percent of the share in the company, or if a local government, which sometimes happens in Germany, has 10 or 20 percent of the share, then in effect, the majority control of the company can change, even though a shareholder has 80 to 90 percent of the capital. So this is a fundamental change in the notion of private property, which from the point of view of uh, British shareholders or US shareholders, or actually French shareholders, is very shocking. But in the end, I, I argue that this was by and large a big success and this allowed more 
involvement of uh, workers in the long-term strategy of, of, of companies. So I propose to generalize this kind of rule to other countries. And I think we can even go further than that. So, you know, this is the kind of participatory socialism or, you know, social democracy for the 21st century, if you prefer this term, uh, uh, that, I, that I'm proposing in the book. You looked at me like you thought I might buy the second bit, but not the first. <laughs> I'm not here, you know, to rule language and to say, you know, which words are acceptable. So if, you're, if you feel yeah. easier with social democracy for the 21st century, you know, please. You are quite sceptical of movements for social democracy in the 20th century, though. You well, don't see them as ultimately well, I'm successful tr- or... Uh, well, I'm trying to contribute to rethink, you know, the, the, the programmatic basis of, of social democracy. But as you, you know, I have noticed that since 1980, 1990, they've indeed, indeed lost a lot of their appeal. And I think largely because they were not able on the issue of educational justice and access to higher education and on the issue of uh, access to property and the diffusion of property and economic power in in, in society, they they were not really uh, able to renew and extend their policy platform that was very successful in the post-war period, but which in the era of globalization and financial deregulation, uh, they were not really able to renew and extend to the world that we have today. It is pretty clear, I think, that if you essentially take away all the wealth of billionaires, you're going to affect incentives for entrepreneurialism in the economy. It has to be crystal clear that there's a real crisis before you want to take such radical steps. I don't think it is. And I don't think it's clear in the minds of the public that that's the case. The public think a lot has gone wrong with capitalism. They think that the economy is in some sense rigged against them. But an analysis that's predicated on bashing successful people in the economy is not as popular with the public. And I think there's probably a reason for that. I'm just going to give you a few quick names from the socialist side of the balance sheet around the world. Of course, we have Bernie Sanders, we have Elizabeth Warren in the US. We've just had Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, though not much for longer as leader of the Labour Party. Of those, or indeed range more broadly, if you wish, who would you most like to see lead the charge for the, the kind of solutions that you're laying out for us? Well, first, let me say that it would be great to have younger leaders. <laughs> so, you know, the, all the people you've mentioned are not extremely young. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not saying you need to be young, but I think it's possible to have a leader around, uh, you know, below the age of 70 or even below the age of 60. Uh, and that, that would be good. Now, Warren and Sanders, I think in the US, to me, are the leaders that, that have the, you know, by raising the minimum wage, by increasing public investment in education, public universities, by creating a federal uh, wealth tax, you know, have the, the largest potential to appeal to, uh, you know, many voters uh, from a lower socioeconomic groups that have stopped uh, voting in election. That's going to be difficult because, you know, the process of political disaffiliation is a long-term process. Do you think, process. to put you, this is, yeah. put you on the spot, yeah. do you okay. think they, they have a real chance of beating Donald Trump? Oh, yes, of course. I think nobody knows the answer to this question. I think you don't know the answer. I don't know the answer because, again, there's been massive political disaffiliation. You know, if you look at the bottom 50% income group in the U.S., most of them actually don't vote. And it is actually the same in Britain or in France. Now, why don't they vote? Probably because they feel that what the Democrats, the Republicans have proposed in the recent decades doesn't make much of a difference for them. Is this going to change with only one election? This, I don't know. But, you know, if you don't try to bring a different kind of platform that could appeal to this bottom uh, 50% income group, you know, it means that you are very nihilistic about democracy. And that cannot be the, the solution. 
Let's talk a little bit about yourself, person. You've become something, someone called you the left's rock star economist. You can look modest about that, but it seems a, a reasonable description. Does that seem slightly odd to you as someone writing about inequality and at the same time you know you are absolutely the the kind of uh, the walking embodiment of a kind of success both on the speaking circuit financially and in terms of, of reputation that kind of goes along with membership of the elites yeah well you know i i would like uh, you know i would have liked to pay a 90% tax on my copyright my experience has sort of confirmed my view that, you know, there's a lot of speculation first in, e- in every economic success. So, you know, it's not when you sell 2.5 million copies of a book, you know, that doesn't mean that your book is worth a thousand times better than all those who sell 2,500 copies. You know, there's a lot of speculation. You know, at some point, everybody wants to, to, to read or at least but to buy. But it's an interesting point you make that you would like to pay more tax. I suppose nothing is stopping you. I mean, is there, and I'm, I'm being serious about it, is there some sort of role perhaps? perhaps, in our tax system, relies on the fact that we're supposed to just sort of have it taken away from us. Would you actually think of offering more money in taxation? In in my case, you know, just like for many uh, innovations or discoveries in other economic sectors, you know, I have have received the help of, uh, you know, hundreds of other researchers. I have received the help of a public education system that has allowed me to learn what I have learned. And so this is, you know, this is a collective process. So I think, you know, property is always but you social. Could vol- you could volunteer to origin. pay more tax then. But I, I do volunteer to pay more tax, but I cannot change the tax system alone. So then, you know, of course, I can, I can give, uh, you know, money and I, I do give money. But I think, you know, it's not, it's historically, if you want to make, uh, say, uh, an education system or a health system work, you know, letting people letting billionaires, for instance, decide uh, what they want to fund and how they want to organize it. I mean, I can see that for them, it's very nice to keep all this power. But the question is, is this working? Well, this is not what has worked historically. I've got to ask if your own household is a model of equality. (laughs) So I can take the example home with me. You have three daughters, inequality between men and women. uh, Would I be impressed by your approach to equality at home as well as in the workplace. Yeah, you know, I do all the shopping, all the cooking at home. I mean, for one good reason is that uh, my, you know, my wife is not the mother of my three daughters. And so I, I, I will certainly not ask her to uh, do, do any, any part of this job instead of me. That would be ridiculous. Look, having three daughters, uh, you know, is, is certainly uh, something, you know, I've... I've yeah, I've learned so much from them, and uh, this is this is something uh, you know. They they are very uh, motivated on uh, you know uh, climate change. I can see them in the demonstration at the you know the Friday demonstration. You know, this is uh, an experience that uh, from which I have I have learned a lot. You're living the philosophy. Yeah, well, I'm trying. Thank you very much for joining us, Thomas Piketty. Thank you. And thank you, Henry. Thank you. And we'd love to know what you think. Can you boast full equality in your kitchen? And are wealth taxes on the super-rich the solution to lifting up the have-nots? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>